for having me. And thank you again, Scott. I'm just truly honored to be here. So my name is Valerie Beck, and I eat chocolate every day. Will anybody else admit to that level? Yeah, of chocolate mania. That's why we're here. <laughs> we're among us. We were chatting earlier that some of us may be chocoholics in the closet. It's time to come out, if we haven't already, <laughs> and be full-fledged chocolate aficionados. So welcome, and thank you so much for having me. Now, I don't mind telling you, too, I was not always this cheerful. As Scott told you, I used to be a lawyer. <laughs> that always comes out a little silly. But do we have any lawyers or people who love lawyers? I think we're lovable. <laughs> And I, I mention that, too, because it's, it's true, isn't it, that we all get to where we are through such twisting paths. And yet, I knew from age four that I was a chocolate maniac. I don't know if you have any similar memories of the first time you really fell in love with chocolate or if it's just always been something that's been with you. But I can remember at age four telling my mother, Mommy, I really would prefer no longer to drink milk unless it's chocolate milk. <laughs> and she said, yes, yeah, she is the coolest mom. And I think, you know, chocolate, I don't like the word personally, chocoholism. It sounds so negative. <laughs> it sounds like you need a 12-step program, whereas really the 12 steps is never to be more than 12 steps away from chocolates. You can get to it at any time. That's an old one, but a, a great one. Um, but I, I love the word chocolate lover. Love sounds so much just more loving than, than holicism. And so in any case, I remember that my family were always chocolate lovers as well. So I think my mom indulged my chocolate mania so that she could continue to indulge her chocolate mania. Is it genetic? Many things are. Who knows? But in any case, my, my chocolate mania persisted, and I thought I'd tell you a little bit about myself so you'll know, you know, who is this, this kind of crazy, cheerful chocolate girl? And, and then we'll go into the history of chocolates, the long and crazy winding path that, that chocolate has taken to be here with all of us today as well. And then we'll look ahead, of course, to the future of chocolate, which we're living in a chocolate revolution right now. And we will taste the past, that is, we'll taste cocoa beans, the, the seed of the cocoa fruit from which all chocolate comes. Has anybody had raw cocoa beans before? Oh boy, are you in for a multivitamin filled treat. These are so awesome. And we'll taste some of the future of chocolate, you might say. That is craft chocolate. Any craft beer aficionados? Well, now there's craft chocolate. Basically, the idea is that instead of buying bulk chocolate from the big importers who do use child slave labor in their supply chains, now up-and-coming chocolate makers are getting their own cocoa beans and turning those into chocolate in small batches. And this is really part of the, the new wave of chocolate. So that's what we're going to taste, and that's what's on our program. So. After I was able to get away with getting regular milk out of my diet and getting purely chocolate milk into my diet, my chocolate mania only increased. And so, as Scott mentioned, I did study abroad in Paris, and I remember tasting my first piece of truly fine European chocolate. So I'm from Chicago, of course, and, and grew up on the, the Hershey bar, and Fannie Mae would be something really special. Any other, are we all Chicagoans? Many of us, most of us, some of us. <laughs> and then on a really fancy day, we'd have Godiva. And so that was the kind of chocolate that I grew up on, and I loved it. Again, today we know that's highly processed, highly commercialized, child labor in the supply chain. Basically, every horrible thing you can imagine in the big chocolate world is in the big chocolate world. And I say that with love, and that sounds kind of silly, but what I mean by that is that in food, we're all friends, and we're all connected, and we're all looking for solutions to just keep us all moving forward. So when I went to Paris, I remember tasting this first piece of, of fine 
French chocolate. It was at a great shop called Beauve et Gaillet. Anybody been there by chance? It's been there since the 1700s. The kings of France used to have chocolate pharmacists who, if they had a little tummy ache, maybe King Louis the whoever had a little headache, the chocolate pharmacist would mix him up a special recipe to cure whatever ailed him with chocolate. That's how life should be, right? Having a chocolate pill <laughs> to swallow and enjoy anytime we want to. I guess we do live that way if, if we choose to. I do. <laughs> and so I went to that very shop and I let the chocolate melt on my mouth. I can still taste it if I close my eyes and, and really just sort of mentally transport myself back there. And it was so incredibly smooth and pure and flavorful. I remember thinking, why have I not been eating this level of chocolate for the first, at that point, 19 years of my life? And I made up my mind that from that point forward, I was going to eat great chocolate for the rest of my life, and I was going to tell other people about it. So I think I had an entrepreneurial spirit in my heart, even at that time, without knowing about it. Any entrepreneurs, business owners? Oh, it's fun. It's crazy, but it's fun, right? And so I got started right away. That's what sometimes we do as an entrepreneur. You have an idea, let's just try it out. What's the worst that could happen? So I thought I wanted to find a way to let other people learn about chocolate, fall in love with great chocolate, and just really have a meaningful chocolate experience. So I wanted to invent the first chocolate tour. Today there are all kinds of great specialty tours, but back then there was nothing like that. There were architecture tours and, and city tours, and, and those are fabulous, but I wanted to start a chocolate tour. So. I did. I got some friends together who were also studying in Paris. They were from all over. I met them there. We had a girl from Nicaragua and a girl from Germany and et cetera. So I got them all together and I said, hey, who wants to walk around Paris with me and eat all the chocolate we can get our hands on? They said, I'm in. We're in. We're going to do this. So that was the first chocolate tour. And I didn't charge any money for it. I, I didn't think of it as a business. I was going to walk around Paris and eat chocolate anyway. So I thought, why not get some people to do that with me? So fast forward, Harvard undergrad and Harvard Law School. And I'm so grateful that I had those opportunities. I believe education is never wasted. That's part of why I like to be an adjunct here at Kendall. Hey, students. And I love being able to open doors of chocolate. And my education has brought me to where I am, and I love seeing our students' educations bringing them forward as well. So after I realized I could no longer continue at the law firm, it was five years, but it felt like dog years. Will our lawyers agree? Yeah. <laughs> so it kind of felt like 35 years <laughs> and five years of practice. And I decided, you know, my heart wasn't in it. And where was my heart? Chocolate. And so I thought, well, that crazy idea I had in Paris at age 19, I'm really going to do it. And so I did. I simply started the same way. I had no money. I had no clients. I had no business plan. Perfect timing to start a business, wouldn't you agree? Yeah. And so I just got together some friends and said, hey, wouldn't you like to walk around Chicago with me and eat all the chocolate and pastry that we can get our hands on? And they said, yes, I'm in, we're in. And so that's how it started. So fast forward, I ended up expanding the business to, we ran about 20, 25 tours a week in Chicago, opened in Philadelphia, Boston. We had a Beverly Hills bakery tour, lots of things going on across America. And it was so much fun to get to be the one to grow this business. It sounds a little spiritual, but I can tell you, I feel like chocolate chose me. Do you ever feel like your thing chose you? I feel like my thing chose me, and I said yes. And so I felt so lucky and grateful that I got to do that. And so over time, the business really shifted 
And I'll show you a quick video and then we'll jump into the chocolatey, crazy history of the world. So my business has now really shifted into more of the distribution side. So chocolate tours are awesome. We still do them by appointment. We take you around to all the best chocolate shops in town where you get to sample, learn, enjoy, peek into some kitchens, sample out of the pot, out of the, you know, lick the bowl, basically, see what's going on. And it's just really a, a two-hour walking party, which is really fun. Or we do a motor coach. It's all good. But in any case, the business has now really shifted into wholesale distribution as well as retail through subscription boxes. I don't know if we have any Birchbox fans, but subscription boxes are such a fun model. It's like the old Book of the Month Club, or when I was a kid, it was the Columbia Records Tape of the Month Club. <laughs> Some of you are with me on that. So in any case, we send you chocolate every month as a subscription. So that's really how the, the business has shifted. Um, and it's just fun to get to be in the thing I love, which is chocolate. I eat it every day. I help you eat it every day. And, and I, I just love it. So I thought I'd show you a quick video clip that shows a little bit about the tours. And then we'll get into the history of chocolate. So your first quiz, the teacher and me, in advance. So you have time to you know Google it, I guess, if you want to. But when we get uh, quickly to the history of chocolate, I'm going to ask you, where did it all come from? When and where did people first start cultivating cocoa beans and, and making chocolate? So you can think about that a little. Let me run back around here. Here we go. Okay, I should have turned this around so it goes the other way. Business thing. 
there for 25 years. The owner says the tour has been great for bringing in clientele from near and far. Begin. So when and where did did chocolate first be cultivated? Let's start with when. How long have people been enjoying chocolate? And it's scary to imagine a world without chocolate, isn't it? That's just unthinkable. <laughs> when did it all start? Creation. I like that answer. <laughs> when else? <laughs> In the three-digit years, a long time ago, centuries ago. When else? Mayans definitely play such a crucial role in chocolate. Yeah, more than a couple thousand years ago. Well, everybody's on the right track because, well, oh, before I reveal, I've got to tell you a cute story. You just saw our, our little tour montage. Well, one of the groups that we often do tours for are public school students. And just what a thrill to welcome the really little kids to the tours. And I asked a group of them at one point, children, when and where do you think chocolate started? Starting with where? Oh, and they were so organized, these kids. They practically got into study groups. One group said, we think chocolate started in the 1960s. <laughs> and another group said, no, no, that's all wrong. It was 1996. They had the year. <laughs> to them, that was ancient history. So in a sense, they were on the right track because it was ancient history. For at least 5,000 years that we know, people have been enjoying chocolate. Now, probably before that, but we just don't have a history. What we do know is that in the Amazon basin, so think Amazon, uh, Ecuador, I'm trying to say, in the Amazon basin, Ecuador, uh, Bolivia, Peru, there were some archaeological digs that uncovered some old pots. What were these pots used for? Carbon dating and um, various types of testing showed that there was a residue in these pots called theobromine. And theobromine sounds like caffeine because it gives us a lift, but unlike caffeine, it doesn't react with our central nervous system to give us that crash. That's why chocolate is such a smooth ride. Isn't that wonderful? We get, right? It loves us. We get the lift without the crash. So theobromine is found in chocolate, and theobromine was found in these pots. And so through carbon dating, scientists were able to find out these pots were over 5,000 years old. So for at least 5,000 years, people have been making chocolate. And as a side note, too, when I first heard that, I first read that, I thought, wow, 5,000 years is a long time not to do the dishes, <laughs> to still have that residue in the pots. But then, you know, I, I don't throw stones from my glass house. If you were to excavate my kitchen 5,000 years from now, you'd probably find a lot of chocolate smeared all over the place, too. So that's the way it goes. So the, the people of those times were actually pre-Mayan, pre-Aztec. Uh, there were people called the Quichua and the Olmec, pre-Columbian, pre-Christopher Columbian, pre-European, pre uh, people who lived in the Amazon 
region loved chocolate. So what they would do is take cocoa beans, which I'll hand out to you in a moment. Maybe my helpers can uh, help me do that in, in just a moment. So they would take the cocoa beans that we'll see in a, a second. You see some of them flipping through the, the screen there. They would grind them up, mix the cocoa beans, not with sugar, the way we think of chocolate as a, a sweet or semi-sweet treat. They would mix it with cornmeal and chili peppers. And think of South American, Mexican food with these great warm flavors, a little bit of spice. That was as normal to the people of that time and place as adding sugar would be normal to us. Now, the other thing that was so different, not only the ingredients, but the preparation, because in the ancient days, 5,000 years ago, all the way up to the 19th century, chocolate was never a bar, never a bonbon, never a chocolate croissant, never chocolate cake, chocolate ice cream, all the delivery mechanisms that, <laughs> that we get to enjoy for chocolate today. In the ancient days, chocolate was always a beverage, never a bar. And so you drank your chocolate, and that was just as normal as drinking your coffee or drinking your tea. And so we'll talk about when did the change happen, because this was a chocolate revolution going from beverage to bar. But in the ancient days, chocolate was always a drink. Now, in the Aztec times, chocolate started to be raised to a very high level of sophistication in terms of preparation, rituals of preparing it and drinking it, and as for who could drink it and when. So we're enjoying chocolate, we think relatively democratically from 5,000 years ago. Anybody could, you know, partake of this wonderful beverage. The Aztecs had a little bit different view of things. So their base was Mexico City, so now about 2,500 years ago, think of Emperor Montezuma, the, the king of the Aztec realm. Now, cocoa beans like to grow where it's hot and humid. They like the rainforest. And Mexico City is high and dry, of course, up in the mountains, if you've ever visited or, or seen it on a map. And so the Aztecs wanted chocolate, but they didn't have the landscape to grow cocoa beans. And so they conquered the Mayan people, and they conquered other people who were in the rainforest lands, and they made them pay in chocolate, in cocoa beans. So the Aztecs really started a, a kind of a transnational cocoa trade, you might say, because now they were importing beans from the far-flung regions of their empire to Mexico City and their other sort of main cities or capitals, where now chocolate was expensive. It was an imported good. It grows on trees, yes, but it had to get all the way to the Aztecs. And so now, 2,500 years ago, chocolate was something very special for the wealthy. In fact, chocolate was so highly prized that cocoa beans were used as currency. They were cash. If you had cocoa beans, you could go shopping, you could buy dinner, you could buy real estate, you could buy gold. Cocoa beans were worth more than gold. And in a sense, isn't that fitting? <laughs> chocolate, the most valuable property on earth. So the Aztecs prized chocolate very highly, and they had specific rituals in which they would enjoy it. For example, it was very highly prized for the military. If the elite warriors were going into battle, they would drink goblets of chocolate to give them strength and dignity. And chocolate can be very satisfying and very filling. And so this was part of their war rations, you might say, to be able to fill up on chocolate and then have, have the energy to, to go out for their next campaign. Chocolate was also part of different weddings, spiritual rituals. It was, I guess I think of it sort of as the champagne of, of the Aztec society in some ways. Today we get to have champagne every day in a sense, chocolate every day, but in the Aztec days it was a very special treat for very special people. So I love that I think we live in the best of all times where we can have amazing chocolate every day that we want, but chocolate's journey continued. At this point, maybe we can uh, help hand out our, our cocoa beans because 
we'll start to get into a little bit more of the preparation. So I'll grab one and thank you ladies and gentlemen. We've got Duina and Benedita and Michael, thank you. So when you get a cocoa bean, yeah, I'll let you take a couple baggies. You'll see, and you've, you've seen them before probably and you've seen them on the screen, they look very much like almonds. And in fact, when the Europeans first came to this side of the planet, they couldn't understand the fuss at first about these funny looking almonds. And it wasn't until a little bit later they figured out more of the story. So when you get your cocoa bean, we'll, we'll taste them and we'll eat them together if you like. Uh, but who are my dark chocolate lovers? All right. Who's more milk? Do we have any white chocolate lovers? We're going to cover that too. Is it or is it not really chocolate? We'll talk about that. We've got some, some very powerful opinions on that matter. So we'll cover all of that as well. So when you get to your cocoa bean, if you peel off the husk, that's the first step. You can eat the husk, but it holds a little bit of bitterness, and I recommend peeling it off. When you make chocolate, you peel off the husk. So these, by the way, are grade A, triple grade A cocoa beans from Haiti. These are super high quality and delicious. And we'll talk about what goes into to the quality of cacao, but if you can peel off the husk, it's not so easy, right? Imagine if you're a small batch chocolate maker, what are you gonna do to get these husks off? Well, there are some machines that will help, but they don't work very well. So if anybody invents one that works better, you'll, you'll be a chocolate millionaire, gazillionaire. So the um, uh, current machines peel them off with sort of a vacuum uh, method, but it's not always effective. And the machine's gotta be run sometimes two or three times to get all of the husk particulate out. I think we might be missing some cocoa beans from some of our group. There we go. And I've got more in the back if we need more, too. Thank you. Did everybody get one? I've got more back there. Oh, ladies, there's some more cocoa beans in the bag there. We've got some of our audience members who didn't get one yet. We've got plenty for everybody. <laughs> All right, so if you're able to get that husk off, sometimes I bite it or crack it with my teeth to get it off. It's not always easy. What you've got inside is what we call the nib, the actual cocoa bean. And by the way, cacao, cocoa, it's really the same thing. The ancient, oh, thank you. The, uh, the uh, ancients, uh, that is in the Aztec language, chocolate was called jocolatl, spelled with an X. So when the Spanish came over, they sort of turned jocolatl into the word cacao. And then when the Anglos, the English got it, they misspelled it into cocoa. And so that that's why we've got cacao and cocoa, but it's the same thing. It comes from the Aztec word, chocolatl. Everybody got a bean? And again, we call it a bean, but it's the seed of the fruit of the, of the cocoa tree. So after you get off the husk, inside is what we call the nib, the actual cocoa bean, the actual seed. And the nib is what we grind up and make into chocolate. And I'll show you a video of how that works as well. But if you taste it, to me, they taste very nutty. And if you think they taste really bitter and horrible, ooh, we'll wash it out with some chocolate. Every palate is different. I find that these are delicious. Although I'll be honest with you, the first time I tried one, they were, I had very low quality cocoa beans at that time, and I thought they were bitter and horrible. And yet something, something compelled me to eat a second one, and I've been hooked ever since. So you might be, you might be hooked too. So who says these are really nutty and delicious? And who says, why did I listen to that lady and eat this thing? <laughs> we can kind of go in a variety of ways. And it's okay, every palate <laughs> is different. So what you just ate or spit out, sorry, um, <laughs> what you just ate or, or tried to eat is not only the seed from which all chocolate is made, but it's a multivitamin. So inside, packed inside this great little seed is magnesium, potassium, iron, protein, all kinds of vitamins, other minerals, fiber, and cocoa beans are so healthy because as you can taste, they're sugar-free, 
<laughs> There's about zero sweetness in this. They're, they're nuts, they're seeds. Seeds are healthy, nuts are healthy. And so for the ancient people, this was always known. The, the pre-Mayan people, the Quechua and the Olmecs, then into the Mayans, the Incas, of course, and, and the Aztecs, they knew the health benefits of chocolate. They knew that this is plant food. They knew that this was, that this was uh, good for them in so many ways. Question, thought. Good question, these are actually raw. These are unroasted. And roasting is one of the steps, and we'll go through that, but these are raw. Once they're roasted, oh boy, they kind of taste like brownies. <laughs> they're really good roasted, too. But raw, you get that nutty sense that I really uh, uh, was eager for you to experience. And so the ancients knew that, that uh, uh, chocolate was healthy. The Europeans picked that up when they came. So here's your next quiz. We covered when and where. Chocolate is uh, native to the Amazon basin at least 5,000 years ago. Now, your next quiz, who was the first European? to try chocolate. Because today, of course, when we think of fine chocolate, what countries do you think of? You think of France, Belgium, Switzerland. Yeah, the chocolate revolution in this century is happening in America. We'll talk about that. And the rest of the world is picking up on it. But who is the first European? The Dutch did so much to move chocolate technology forward. I'll give you a clue. When I ask fourth graders this question, they always get it right. I think I heard it, Christopher Columbus, exactly. When I asked the, the fourth graders, early European, that's the only one they know, I think, Christopher Columbus. So that's what they say. So when Columbus came to this side of the world, he saw that the Aztecs had all kinds of goods and services, of course. The Mexico City, and as he got that far, and, and the coastal cities were so much more sophisticated, apparently, than Madrid or Rome or other European cities at that time. There were beautiful landscapings and and sewers, not to be, you know, it was, this was an innovation that, that wasn't happening in Europe at that time. So when Columbus came over, he saw that there was a world of, of gold, literally and figuratively, here on this side of the planet. He couldn't figure out, though, what was the deal with these cocoa beans. He sampled the chocolate drink, but he didn't like it. Christopher Columbus didn't like chocolate. That's crazy, right? What's wrong? Maybe because it was spicy at that time, and that was just not a flavor that was in use in Europe to a great extent in those days. So Christopher Columbus didn't quite get the, the chocolate fanaticism that the Aztecs had, but what was his job as a conquistador? He was supposed to find everything of value and bring it back to Spain, and that's what he did, cocoa beans included. Well, his bosses, Ferdinand and Isabella, the king and queen of Spain at that time, saw the gold and the silver and the emeralds and all of these amazing riches that Columbus stole, plundered, conquistadored, whatever your favorite action verb for, for this imperial. Uh, uh, conquest uh, time of history is, brought back the goods. Uh, uh, King and Queen of Spain didn't quite see the use for cocoa beans either, but they said, we'd like some more of the gold and, and silver and emeralds and rubies, etc. please. Can you, can you go back and fetch us some more and we'll send more men and, and more ships and, and more conquerors. So about 20 years later, when Cortes came to this side of the planet as part of the Conquistador mission, he understood what cocoa beans were for. They were for this elite amazing drink and they were cash. And again, what's the job of a conquistador? Grab everything of value. So Cortez was the one who took over the Aztec cocoa trade that I talked about, how cocoa beans were grown, of course, in the hot, humid regions, and the Aztec capital was in a high and dry region. So the Aztecs had a very sophisticated cocoa distribution system in place. 
Cortez and his men took it over. And they started planting additional cocoa trees in these far-flung regions. They eventually took over all of, of South America, except uh, uh, Brazil, taken by the Portuguese, of course. And so now the Europeans were growing cocoa uh, on their own account, growing money for Spain and Portugal basically. And so the transatlantic cocoa trade began now with the first ship of cocoa beans sailing from Veracruz, Mexico, landing in Barcelona, Spain. We've got Spain in the house, I know. Hello. And so Barcelona was the first European city to go wild for chocolate. And if you go to Barcelona and Spain today, it's a highly chocolatey country, isn't it? So delicious, so innovative. So now the Europeans were getting the taste for chocolate after Cortes and other colonial were bringing it back. And did the Europeans keep the spicy flavors of chocolate, though? No, they did not at that time. I'll put my bean down. I'll eat it later. I love these. Actually, I put two on my grapefruit every morning. Very healthy. So the um, uh, uh, Spanish now started innovating with chocolate in some really exciting ways. They took out the chili peppers from the recipe, and they said, let's put in something we like. How about sugar? and vanilla, and milk, and cream. So chocolate was still a drink at this time, of course. We haven't gotten to the 19th century when we'll get it into solid bar form. Imagine if to eat chocolate during the day, you had to carry a flask <laughs> with you to drink it. I would, I would still do that, of course. I would not go through the day without it. But chocolate was still only a beverage at this time. And so in colonial time Spain, so we're talking 15th century, uh, 15th century and 16th century, this was a very expensive product, chocolate, because it had to come in ships all the way from Mexico and South America. And so you knew you had arrived in 16th century Spanish society, let's say, if when your friends came over, you could offer them coffee, tea, or chocolate. Because chocolate was so expensive that only the wealthiest households had it. And just like if you buy a big mansion, now you've got to buy the furniture to fill it with. If you buy chocolate, you've got to have all of the, the tea things, coffee things, chocolate things now you've got to have. So special china, special porcelain, special silver spoons and cups and everything to really make your, not tea party, but your chocolate party effective. So chocolate was really for the wealthy in Spain at that time. And Spain was getting wealthier selling chocolate to the rest of Europe. Did the rest of Europe want the recipe? Yes, they did. Did the Spanish share it with them? No, they did not. And so Spain was the, the European capital country of chocolate importing sales and distribution. This monopoly actually lasted for about 100 years. And it's kind of interesting to think about today because now you could sort of GPS it or reverse engineer it or, you know, I don't know, we'd sort of figure something out, I think. Where are the cocoa beans coming from? How can we get our own? But... Life was longer distances and, and time constraints at that time, and so Spain had a European chocolate monopoly for 100 years. How did that monopoly break through other countries starting to conquer other lands? So again, this is the age of, of exploration, the age of genocide, however you want to, to look at it, right? But what happened, of course, is now other European nations are taking over other South American and African nations where they can plant these types of crops. So. Next quiz. Today, we're kind of leaping through time back and forth. Where do most cocoa beans come from? Because it's not South America anymore, where they're from. Where do they come from now? Yeah, they come from Africa. Ivory Coast grows 60% of the world's cocoa beans. Add in the neighbor Ghana, Ivory Coast and Ghana together, grow 70% of the world's cocoa beans. So how did this happen? Colonialism. 
So Spain had the monopoly coming from most of South America, and other countries now, such as Belgium, started to plant in Africa. And the Portuguese, of course, had Brazil and, and other parts of Africa. So chocolate was always a colonial crop for the Europeans. It grows about 10 to 20 degrees north or south of the equator. So you can't grow it in Europe. You can't grow it in Chicago. But we're growing it in Hawaii now. We, we not me, but, but uh, people, some of my, my clients are growing it in Hawaii now, which is really, is that like climate change scary or is this a good thing? Again, I'll leave all the judgments up to you. But the fact of the matter is through shifting climate patterns, we are able to see cocoa beans grown in Hawaii now. So there's, yeah, a lot of future coming in the chocolate future. But back to our colonial friends. So now that other European nations are getting their hands on the source of cacao and able to make their own chocolate, now we start to see even yet additional innovation. So when I asked you what countries do you think about for fine chocolate, I heard Belgium and Switzerland and France. So now these countries are getting in on the game. Now, are you ready for chocolate to turn from beverage to bar, hallelujah. People wanted chocolate bars. We wanted portable chocolate. We wanted to be able to stash it with us on every trip, everywhere we went. In fact, a crazy little side story, and then we'll, we'll get into how uh, uh, chocolate took this big revolution. Switzerland was involved, unless you ask the English, but we'll, we'll cover that too. So while chocolate was still a drink, Spain was, again, still such a capital of chocolate. And apparently it was the custom that if you were going to a, a long, beautiful Spanish mass in the church or the cathedral, if you were a very rich lady, you would pay your chocolate man to bring all of your chocolate things and make chocolate in the church so that during these long masses and ceremonies, you could be fortified with chocolate, which was known to be a very fortifying beverage. And so the priests we're not so happy with this because things are clunking and clinking and ladies are having chocolate parties during church. And so the priest put out the word, no more chocolate making in church. Ooh, okay, this story kind of takes a really um, bad turn. But so uh, the head priest of that was found murdered. Yeah. Um, and then the new priest said, hey, you can make chocolate in the church. <laughs> and then no more priests were murdered. So uh, that's what happened. So uh, chocolate is, it inspires passion, right? We're not going to give up. <laughs> we're not going to give up our chocolate. I don't condone violence of any sort, but that's what happened. So, okay, so we're in the uh, 19th century. Now, and you know the name Lint, I'm sure, right? Lint chocolate, huge heritage name in chocolate. Well, Rudolf Lint was a real person, and he started his chocolate company in 1845. He was 24 years old, hotshot young entrepreneur, and he had the latest and the greatest in chocolate technology. Now, 1845 is pre-electricity, so the latest and greatest in technology might sound a little bit primitive to us, but at the time it was state of the art. He had ropes and pulleys to mix his chocolate in these big vats. Before that, it was your arm mixing the chocolate. So having any type of equipment or machinery was kind of pre-industrial revolution, but it was pretty radical. It was pretty cool. So here's where the story turns perhaps apocryphal. Here's where we don't really know how much is, you know, sort of marketing and, and what really happened. But what we do know is that Lint went away on some sort of a vacation or three-day weekend or whatever the case may have been. And we know that he left his chocolate machine mixing during his absence. So, again, the story gets a little vague here. But what we understand is that when he came back, he was worried that he may have overmixed and ruined his product. 
I don't know about you, but I have personally before overmixed and ruined food. And sometimes you just go too far. It happens. You're enthusiastic. So he was worried that he had ruined his chocolate, but he couldn't afford to ruin chocolate. It was still so expensive in those days. So he thought, well, I'm going to taste it. Maybe I can salvage it, use it in some other application, and we'll just see what the, what the options are. Well, when he tasted this chocolate, it was not overmixed and tasteless. It was delicious. It was the best chocolate that he had ever made or that he had ever tasted from anybody else ever making. Why was it so good? It was not bitter. It was creamy, and it had a viscous consistency that was starting to stand up and solidify. How did this delicious, non-bitter, smooth, stand-up, crystallized chocolate happen? Through, not over-mixing, but through long enough mixing. So if you mix chocolate for less than, say, 36 hours, you won't get it into crystal shape five. You'll get it into one of the other four. Chocolate needs time. Time is an ingredient, if you think about it, right? Put it in the oven for 20 minutes or whatever it is. Time is an ingredient. And nobody was mixing chocolate long enough because nobody knew to mix chocolate long enough to get it to crystallize into a new molecular form. Chemistry, cooking, baking, it's all chemistry, right? And so what Lint had done accidentally is what chocolate makers today do on purpose. Mix your chocolate long enough so that the crystals will line up in such a way that your chocolate will stay stable. The angels sang at this point because now we didn't have to drink our chocolate. We could get it to stay stable in bar form. And so that's how the first chocolate bar came about. Unless, again, you ask the English, do you ever sort of, I don't know, sometimes I think it's interesting that the same idea is sort of out there in multiple minds or in multiple sort of areas. So, so similar experiments were happening in England where chocolate makers were trying to make solid chocolate. So if you ask the English, they'll go with one of their guys. But most research seems to point to Lint kind of getting to the patent office first, you might say. And so we hold up Lint as the, the sort of father of the chocolate bar. Now, the story gets even better. Lint didn't stop there. He had his chocolate bar. Now he went up the road, so to speak, to his friend Henry Nestle. I know you know Nestle, biggest food company in the world today. Well, at the time, Henri Nestle was known for condensed milk. So... Chocolate is hydrophobic. It doesn't like water. Does anybody like fooling around with chocolate in the kitchen cooking? I'd say I fool around with it. You're probably a pro. <laughs> so I, um, I definitely have found, and, and maybe you have too, that if you even get one half of one fourth of one drop of water in your chocolate, it's ruined. It, the, the crystal structure is broken. It'll never set back up again. You've got to just start all over. So you cannot add liquid milk to chocolate if you want to make milk chocolate, or you'll have the same problem. Milk can contains water. Chocolate contains no water. Isn't that fascinating? Milk contains water. So if you add milk, liquid milk to chocolate, you'll have a mess and you can't work with it. But what if you add powdered condensed milk? <gasps> wow. So that was what Nestle and Lint did together, creating the first milk chocolate bar. Again, unless you talk to our English friends, they had a guy and, and they had some people working on this. But from what most studies show, Linda Nestle got there first. So with powdered condensed milk and new solid chocolate, we had the first milk 
chocolate. This is huge. This is revolutionary because now chocolate could start to take other inclusions. It could start to take other flavors. Do I have any raspberry chocolate lovers? Any caramel? Yes. Oh my goodness. All nuts. All the fun things you can do. I brought for you today at the end to try some different flavors of chocolate. One of them is zatar, Middle Eastern spices in the chocolate, sesame and sumac. You can do everything with chocolate. And that's because of some of these 19th century inventions or, or innovations. I, I just get so excited about all of that. So the, the story goes on and on. Can we jump forward to the 20th century? Because, wow, now we're really picking up steam. The price of chocolate is coming down now that we've got a little bit of mass production going. We've got the Industrial Revolution. We've got electricity. All of these elements are combining in the food world as well to bring some prices down. Cocoa beans are still an expensive imported good at that time and today at this time, but now in production, we're able to cut down some costs and make chocolate available for more people so you didn't have to be a, a Spanish duchess to afford chocolate. You could be anybody and, and start to, to approach the, the love of, of chocolate indulgence. So. 20th century. Who's the big name? Milton Hershey. Thank you, Scott, for my, <laughs> my Hershey bar. Now, today, of course, and again, I'll, I'll highlight it again. Today, so many of the, all of the big brands uh, have got some very unsavory practices in their, in their supply chain. Uh, um, 2.1 million kids work in Ivory Coast, for example, under hazardous slave conditions, meaning that they don't live with their families, they don't go to school, uh, they're in these, these farms, these like camp farms, uh, where, where they don't get paid. Um, and they have to work harvesting cocoa pods, spraying pesticides. Oh, that's a whole other, uh, whole other uh, health uh, issue, I believe, as as well as a, a child labor issue. So, 2.1 million kids are in this situation, and. Where do these cocoa beans go? They go to all the brands we see on the shelves. Um, personally, I find this so heartbreaking, and I don't know about you, but when I feel like there's a big problem and I can't do anything about it, I get awfully depressed. But when I try to find a way to help, then I feel energized and empowered. So what I do is for every tour ticket sold and every subscription box sold, I donate a meal to kids in a rescue center in West Africa. So they've escaped from the farms, the ones who can escape, and then they get picked up by this rescue center, the ones who can get found by the rescue center. And then when they're at this rescue center, I was speaking with the owner, uh, the founder of it, Chloe, and I asked her, how can I help through my business? Do you need shoes like Tom's shoes that you might know here um, uh, in the States? If you buy a pair of their shoes, they give a pair of shoes to a kid who doesn't have shoes, whether in the US or, or around the world. I thought, I want to do something like that. And I asked her, do you need shoes or books or toys? What do you need for the kid? She said, we need food. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, I didn't <laughs> Let's start basic, right? Um, so for every uh, tour ticket or sold, we give a meal of rice uh, for the kids. We just send her a PayPal and, and she buys the rice. So I, I, I just absolutely hate this, this problem of, of child labor, but I love being able to at least be some part of the solution. And you know, honestly, I don't mean to, to pick on our big brand friends. I've got lots of friends who work at, at Lint and, and Nestle and places like that. And when I'm not asking them, how do they sleep at night? <laughs> I ask them, you know, what, what, are, what new initiatives are your companies uh, taking? Because everybody knows about the problem in, in chocolate, who's, who's you know, working in, in the chocolate world. And different companies will come up with different ideas. 
Um, personally, I would just make it illegal to import any child slave made good, and they will clean up the problem very quickly. Uh, that law was almost passed in 1997, and the chocolate companies got word that the U.S. Senate, yeah, was about to actually make it illegal to sell their chocolate because it was made with child labor. You can't sell a product with, you can't make child labor products in this country, but they make it in other countries, and, and that's how they, uh, they, they grow the products in other countries. That's how they do it legally. So uh, the company said, wait, U.S. Senate, don't make us illegal. We'll fix the problem ourselves. Fair enough, only they haven't. So they said, okay, we're going to fix it by 2005. And then 2005 came, and they said, well, we, we're, we're going to fix it by 2012. We're trying. And then they said, okay, um, 2017, and that year, this is now, and now they're saying 2025. So what's it going to take? Um, again, smart people work at these brands. Nice people work at these brands. It's going to take we the people, I believe, right? When, when we say what we want, we get what we want. If we don't buy it, they don't sell it. If we tell them what we want to buy, they'll, they'll sell it to us. So that's my, my story on that. So going back, uh, the, the point being that we're seeing all of these innovations coming into the technological side, but the, the labor side, the human rights side, the child rights side was actually always a problem in chocolate since chocolate is a colonial crop. There were some slave practices and child labor practices right from the start, um, and, and that's how we're still here today, 400, 500 years later, because this was such a deeply ingrained problem. So that means it's time to solve it. So Milton Hershey comes into the scene, kind of getting back on our, our history timeline after my rant against, well, I have a soy lecithin rant coming uh, soon too, so that'll be fun. Um, so Milton Hershey comes on the scene through some really interesting means, and there's a Chicago part of that story, which I love as a Chicagoan. So the year is 1893. What's the big news in Chicago in 1893? The World's Fair, absolutely. And this was to showcase our great city after 400 years, plus one, of uh, Columbus coming to this side of the planet. And it was also, really, wasn't it, to showcase our city after it burnt down in the fire of 1872. So all eyes were on Chicago. And apparently, among the people, well, that is truly among the people who came to the World's Fair from all around the world, was one Milton Hershey. Now, he was not yet a chocolate maker. He was actually a young guy in his 20s, pretty much bankrupt from his failed caramel business. I personally love caramel, but apparently nobody loved Milton Hershey's caramel, and it was not working out. So he came to Chicago, he needed some inspiration, he needed to find something new, and worlds collide in a really cool way, because who was the ladies' chair of the World's Fair? It was Bertha Palmer. And what did she bring to the fair besides her brains and wit and, and beauty and, and prescience of all things cultural? She brought a very important chocolate culinary treat. So a little side story of that one. You got it. So, you know, the Palmer House, of course, here in Chicago. Well, it had burnt down in 1872, but Potter Palmer rebuilt it as a testament to his wife Bertha's beauty, and the Palmer House rose again. So the World's Fair is coming. Bertha Palmer's helping everybody get ready. She goes to the chef of the Palmer House and says, Chef, I've got a job for you. We're going to have millions of people coming. We're going to be packing lunchboxes through the Ladies' Auxiliary Club. By the way, whenever it's called Ladies' Auxiliary Club, you know it's really in charge of, of it all. So in any case, the Ladies' Auxiliary Club, who was really in charge of it all, was going to be packing some uh, special lunches for some of the guests. So Bertha Palmer told the chef, I want you to invent a new dessert. Here are the criteria. It's got to be portable, so we can pack it into the lunches. It's got to be chocolate, 
because the world is really going crazy for chocolate. And it's got to be so good. I mean so good that people will be talking about it forever. <laughs> so that's kind of a lot of pressure, right? The boss's wife comes and you know, gives you this, these three tasks or whatever. Well, what did the chef come up with? The brownie, exactly. So the brownie was invented in Chicago at the Palmer House. So cool, right? And we work with them on our tours. And if you go there uh, today, they have it on their menu, the special old-fashioned brownie. It has some apricot gelée. It's really lovely, really a lovely presentation. So Milton Hershey came to the World's Fair, and the brownie was at the World's Fair, and people were going wild for the brownie. And by the way, chef met the criteria, don't you think? It's obviously portable, obviously chocolatey, and we're still talking about it. We still, we still love the brownie, so yay, chef. So Milton Hershey had a brownie, and he saw that everybody was falling in love with the brownie. And apparently, too, at the fair, there was a German chocolate-making machine that was just kind of demonstrating chocolate production of the time, and people were fascinated looking at this machine and, and seeing how this beloved still quite, you know, pricey, not uh, Spanish Duchess pricey anymore, but uh, not, you know, corner store uh, uh, cheap yet. So Milton Hershey saw that people were fascinated by chocolate at this fair. So he had the idea, you know, one of those light bulb moments that he would start making chocolate, coat his caramels in chocolate, and this would be the next big thing. Well, I love chocolate-covered caramels, but you remember, nobody loved Milton Hershey's caramels. So he started this new idea. People loved his chocolate. It was creamy, it was rich, it was delicious, but they still hated his caramels. So they would suck off the chocolate, spit out the caramel, <laughs> and want more chocolate. I just find that so adorable. So finally, Milton got the message. He ditched the caramel production and went full speed ahead with chocolate. Now, milk chocolate was sweeping the world, right, because of Lint and, and the English, and it's been some decades now. Well, Milton Hershey wanted to get the recipe from the Swiss, but this was not open source time, right? Did they give him the recipe? No. So why does American chocolate sometimes taste different? Well, because it is different. Milton Hershey basically reinvented milk chocolate using his own processes and, and methods. So he was really such a genius, and we've got to give him that, that uh, shout out here. Now, Milton Hershey made such a fortune uh, with chocolate, and you know, he and his wife had no children of their own, and so he gave his fortune back. And the Milton Hershey Foundation runs today. Uh, at that time, it supported an orphanage and some other parts of the municipality of what's now Hershey, Pennsylvania. Milton Hershey was originally from unincorporated Pennsylvania. Now it's Hershey because of him, obviously. So he gave his fortune back to the kids. And I, I just love that story. You're sensing I've got this, you know, this like kids theme sort of running through the fourth graders on the tours and the, the kids in West Africa uh, suffering and, and Milton Hershey helping local kids. So today it's not an orphanage, but a school, and Hershey Foundation money still supports that school, which, which I think is awesome. Okay, we're in the 20th century, and things are going pretty well, chocolate-wise, in terms of some really innovative production methods, some really delicious uh, uh, chocolate coming out, and the price now getting to where everybody can have chocolate. Milton Hershey was using some production methods similar to what Ford was doing with automobiles at the same time. So 1907, for example, the Hershey's Kiss came out. I've got a good lawyer story for you. You are waiting for a good lawyer story. So this is really nice because you know the little plume, that little paper that comes out of the Hershey's Kiss? Well, that was because of trademark for, for lawyer, for legal rights. So 
Hershey's Kisses were so crazy popular when they came out uh, in, in 1907 and, and beyond that people were ripping them off. And that is people, other companies were, were copying the Hershey's Kiss, passing it off as Hershey's chocolate when really it wasn't Hershey's chocolate. And you know today how we maybe sort of struggle as a society with artificial ingredients, this was the same back then too. You might find sawdust in your chocolate instead of actual cocoa in your chocolate. So some things never change. They just get more chemical. Um, but so at the time, Milton Hershey knew he needed to find a way to let people know what's a real Hershey's kiss. So the lawyers told him, you need a trademark. You need to put a little paper in, a little plume, as they call it, that says Hershey's kiss. So now when people go to buy their chocolate, they can see what's a real Hershey's kiss and what's not. So thank you. Lawyers. <laughs> so when, though, did, did chocolate start to get that, that attitude or that, that notion of being junk food? Um, because I cannot tell you how many times people ask me, and I'm always so flattered. They say, how do you eat so much chocolate and not be 5,000 pounds? And I tell them, thank you. And, and that really, I, I eat real chocolate, and, and that's what it is. The, the food is to nourish us, and chocolate is food. Chocolate is the cocoa bean that, that you're now in love with, like I am, right? couple of you are not. That's okay, too. Um, but, but chocolate is food. It's, it's not a lab-created artificial concoction. It's food. And if we add junk, uh-oh, now it's junk. But that's if we add junk. Don't add junk, and it's healthy food. So what happened was during World War II, the U.S. government wanted soldiers to be able to take chocolate in their ration kits and needed to find some ways to keep the chocolate from melting, keep it from spoiling in some fashion. So now, mid-20th century, is when we started to see not just, you know, the kind of crazy additives of sawdust, very terrible to be sure, but now's when we started to see uh, chemical additives being put in, different types of preservatives and artificial ingredients that were concocted in laboratories. And they're still in <laughs> some of the chocolate. We also started to see a move to get the price of chocolate even lower. Instead of using more cocoa butter, for example, which is the natural fat of the cocoa bean, just like olive oil is the natural fat of, of the olive, for example, we started to see substitutes for that natural plant fat coming in. Uh, things like uh, uh, hydrogenated oils, palm oil. Sometimes you'll see PGPR listed on the back of a label. I see frowny face. Yeah, anytime it's abbreviated, you know they're hiding something, right? That's my opinion anyway. PGPR is a, uh, another substitute for cocoa butter. It's polyrisin. It's got a lot of syllables. Um, you can Google it if you want to, but it's, it's again another substitute for cocoa butter so that you're getting that, that sort of oily texture. Cocoa butter is not oily. It's rich. It's delicious. It's how you make white chocolate. Cocoa butter from the cocoa bean, milk, and sugar. That's all you need for white chocolate. What do you need to make real or dark chocolate? You need cocoa beans and sugar. What else? That's all. <laughs> That's all you need. You don't need soy lecithin. You don't need palm oil. You don't need PGPR. You don't need any of that. And again, I'll show you a, a little video um, in a little while. But so in the 20th century, that's when we started to see chemical additives, preservatives, etc., starting with wartime motives and then going into cost control motives. And so where are we now? Now we're in the 21st century and we are in a new golden age of chocolate, which I just find tremendously exciting because just as with so many foods, we, we have a yearning for natural, for organic, for small batch. We sort of want our cake and eat it too. We don't want to pay a lot for our food, but we want it to be really good. What are we going to do about that, right? I mean, you get what you pay for, right? That's, you know, nobody's sort of invented a way out of that yet, I don't think. Better, faster, cheaper. You're lucky if you can get two 
right? <laughs> but can we ever have all three? That's, that's, uh, that's a tough one. So real chocolate is real food. Uh, I'm a big label reader. Is anybody else a label maniac? Oh my gosh, I want to know what I'm eating. And if I can't pronounce it, I back away <laughs> from, from the bag or the bar or the can or whatever it is. And so now in the 21st century, we're seeing a return to purity of chocolate. We're seeing a return to organic growing methods. We're seeing a return to just really simple light processing instead of heavy over-processing. So at this point, before we get any deeper toward the present where we'll wrap up and eat lots of chocolate, I thought I'd show you a couple more videos. I'll show one that goes into what I think of as the dark side of chocolate because personally, I, I again, just get so worked up about that and, and I think it's important to know where our food comes from. And if it comes from child slaves in Ivory Coast, then, then you know, let's at least have that knowledge and, and know how to make conscious choices. Um, I never want to tell anybody, only eat this and don't eat that. We all make our own decisions based on budget or convenience or whatever the choice might be, but I believe in making that choice consciously. I don't like to just eat what I'm given. I like to choose what is going to be best for, for me and for my family. So show a video about the dark side of chocolate, and then we'll pick it back up, and, and I'll show you a, a video of a really healthy, sustainable cocoa farm. I'll go through a little bit more, and then I've got a, a few more cute uh, clips at the end. Oh, I can't wait to eat some chocolate. Are you almost ready to? I'm so excited. Okay, let's, we'll do a couple more videos. Agree to 100% certification by 
Stay back here for a sec because I'll play the, the next clip. I don't know. Do you buy it when the senior vice president, executive vice president of Nestle says, it will not work. I'm not buying it. That's my personal opinion. So what we just saw there, of course, is that Nestle is, is building schools for kids in Ivory Coast. And, and that's fabulous. But what if we actually paid the farmers a fair living price, fair price, living wage for, for their crops? The reporter totally caved at the end, right? Yeah, I... I totally agree with you. That, that was my sense as well. So I would have put Jose Lopez's feet a little bit more to the fire. And I would have said, well, so these are some of my uh, chocolate maker clients that I uh, distribute throughout the, the US. And they buy their cocoa beans. And then we'll take a, a question or comment here too, of course. Um, they buy their cocoa beans from, from uh, non-slave farms, obviously. Uh, uh, some are in Africa, places like Madagascar, Tanzania, Uganda. Some are in the Caribbean, Haiti, like the cocoa beans we had. Uh, many uh, South American, of course, uh, Ecuador, Peru, etc. Farmers uh, that grow the specialty cocoa beans that go into specialty chocolate bars, like what we're going to taste, are paid five times more than farmers in West Africa, minimum, to start. And, and it goes up from there. So what I would do if I were Jose Lopez and I was serious about eradicating the problem of child labor is I would do two things. Number one, I would teach farmers how to grow quality cocoa beans because right now the farmers in Ivory Coast don't have the resources. Um, they don't taste the finished product. They don't know 
what they're growing it for. They don't have resources to invest in organic farming practices, which is going to lead to healthier soil and better pH levels in the soil and all of the elements on the farm that go into a healthy crop. They don't have the resources to, to implement. And then the second thing I would do is pay a fair price, pay a living wage. If farmers can't make enough money, the, the uh, kids are, are going to be sold and, and put into these slave camps and society is, is in crumbles. In, in, in shambles in Ivory Coast. So I would grow healthy cacao and I would pay a fair price. They mentioned the uh, fair trade yes. certification. Is that of any value at all? Good question. Fair trade, and we'll come up to a question. I know you had your, your hand up there too. Um, yeah, so fair trade is really important in concept, but sometimes abused. I've seen in implementation. I don't know if you've seen this as well. Um, so fair trade organizations will certify that a product was grown in a way that the, the workers were paid a fair wage. And then fair trade's got this whole, you know, sort of program of nine elements so that there are women involved, that women aren't, you know, subjugated somehow and not able to be part of the business. There's a whole line of, of elements that goes into um, uh, to fair trade. So when it works, it's great, but it often doesn't work because what I've heard talking with farmers in Ecuador, Costa Rica, and a couple other places is that it's so expensive to get fair trade certification and then to maintain it every year. They'd rather put that money into their farm and into their kids' school fees. And so what I'm finding is that the chocolate makers I work with and the customers who are buying this chocolate often don't care if it's got a stamp from some third party saying fair trade as long as the farmers and the growers and the brokers like myself are keeping an eye on the, the matter and making sure that it really is done in a fair way, that farmers are being paid a fair price and, and kids are going to school. Um, I'll tell you too, you can tell with one bite if it's quality or not and we'll get to have those bites in a moment. Um, so the fair trade certification is great when it works but it's sometimes too expensive for the farmers who could really be putting that money into a better um, uh, better use. If you do see fair trade, can you count on it? Rainforest Alliance has a really good reputation. If you see their stamp, and UTS, the European uh, fair trade regulator, has a good reputation. There's a bunch of others out there that are maybe not so reputable, but Rainforest Alliance and UTS are reputable. Question here. Hershey's Wax, she calls it, instead of Hershey's Chocolate. <laughs> It's an excellent point. Ivory Coast has a government, and how are they not controlling the situation? They have a corrupt post-colonial government, and that's, that's a big part of the problem. Um, I'm a little bit radical sometimes. Who's ultimately responsible for the corrupt post-colonial governments in Africa? Yeah, it's Africa, but it's also us, I think, as Americans and Europeans who you know, sort of pushed it um, over that ledge. It's now sort of a global um, issue, in, in my opinion. So I totally agree with you. Uh, Ivory Coast is not taking steps to clean up the problem. Every year, they'll sign like an agreement with Togo and Benin and Ivory Coast, places that kids are trafficked from, into Ivory Coast, and they'll say, we want to stop this, but then nothing ever happens. So yeah, the government there is not taking steps. But I think that we could see change through money, quite capitalistically. Um, that basically, if we told the government of Ivory Coast, we're not going to buy child labor chocolate anymore, the government of Ivory Coast, I think, would pretty quickly uh, try to help clean it up. Good question. So the beans that I passed around from Haiti had that thin skin, the husk, and that is removed before grinding. The way that the big chocolate makers do that is they shear it off with chemicals, and the way that small chocolate makers do that is by painstakingly removing the husk. If you're micro-batch, you're removing it, hold on to your hats, with a hairdryer. 
<laughs> if you're very micro-batch, that's how you get started in the bean-to-bar world. You sort of pick at it and you blow it off with a hair dryer. If you have grown a little bit in your production and your money and your investment, you use a machine called a winnower. And it's not super effective, so I'm waiting for somebody to invent one that is. Basically, imagine a vacuum cleaner that sucks up the cocoa beans, and then it, the vacuum air pulls off the husk, which goes up, and the heavier nib goes down. And there's all manner of varieties of these. Some of my clients kind of jerry-rig their own. They're like craftsmen, you know, craftswomen, handy types, and they'll sort of, you know, fashion their own winnower machines. But the answer is yes, the husk is removed, whether chemically or ideally manually. Exactly. If we don't buy it, they have to change. Absolutely. But so it's an excellent question that I totally wanted to come to. How do we know if our chocolate has child slavery in the supply chain? There's three things that I look for. Number one is small batch. Big Batch, we know, has child labor in the supply chain. We heard Jose Lopez basically say that he couldn't change it and, and that it's there. Um, so first way to know if there's child labor in your chocolate or not. If it's Big Batch, yes. If it's Small Batch, you're already on the right track. Second thing, mm -hmm. it, good question. So Hershey, Nestle, Mars as the big commercial brands, Valrona and Calibo do have child labor in their supply chain. For example, I was talking with a manager from Calibo at the Sweets and Snacks Expo earlier this year, and they had big, beautiful posters, 2025, we're eradicating child slave labor. And so I spoke with the manager there. I know, 20, how many children are, are going to die but, uh, between now and 2025? 20, so I spoke with the manager, and I, I was very kind, I, I think, and and asked her, um, you know, this is great that you're addressing this and that you're joining the conversation. What's your plan? She said that they don't yet have a plan. They have a goal. That's what I said. Oh, brother. Yeah, so they need us. Um, they, they need us. So, uh, yeah, so first thing is look for small batch because if you are big batch, you know it's in the so child labor's in the supply chain. Now you've got small batch, I look for two things on the label. The first thing is the country of cacao origin. This one, cocoa beans are from Uganda, from Brazil, from Madagascar. So if a chocolate maker tells you the country of origin, they're proud that they sourced high-quality, expensive, specialty cocoa beans from that, that country. Now, of course, the big brands are starting to catch on to this, and we're starting to see them come out with origin bars. So the third thing I look for, I look for small batch. I look for the cacao country of origin. Because, by the way, if you look at a Hershey or Nestle bar, does it tell you where the cocoa beans are from? No. If you bought a bottle of wine and you didn't know where it was from, what would you think? What is this? What is in this bottle? Is it from, where is it from? What if it was from all the kids in France who were taken out of school and put into child labor camps and forced to, that's insanity. So, so look for the cacao country of origin. Again, big brands are starting to catch on to this uh, trick of, you know, for them, anyway, they're starting to... Uh, figure that out. Um, so third thing I look for is the ingredients. Um, if you see cocoa beans and sugar, that's all you need. If you see soy lecithin, ooh, I promised you a rant, I'll, I'll deliver. Um, if you see soy lecithin, PGPR, palm oil, natural flavor, which we know is code for anything on planet Earth, it could be bug legs like Starbucks used for their strawberry latte. It wasn't strawberry, it was bug legs that tasted like strawberry. <laughs> and so it's not even vegetarian. Um, in any case, so natural flavor is, is sort of a catch-all for anything on planet Earth is allowed to be called natural. Um, if you see artificial flavor, you know something's up, but natural flavor is not 
really that different in the sense that it's it's a, a hiding place for for anything that the companies want to, to process and manufacture. Um, so I look for a clean ingredients list, and I know that if these are high-quality cocoa beans, the chocolate maker is not going to poison them or, or dilute them with with this, this sort of uh, uh, chemical or, or uh, uh, non-healthy um, additive. So right now, that's what we look for. Again, it's always shifting, right, as, as brands sort of try to get in on some of the marketing angles, but I'll look for small batch country of cacao origin and a clean ingredients list. Yeah, how do you know if it's small batch? So the, that's a great question. So the easy cut is basically everything on the, the grocery store, you know, traditional grocery store shelves, uh, all the famous brands, anything advertised on TV, Hershey, Nestle, Mars, Snickers, all the, you know, things that come from that, anything that's got a store on Michigan Avenue, um, you know, Vosges, uh, uh, Fannie Mae, all of these are, are large batch. Small batch are things like this, these little brands that are not so high profile, not so well known. They don't have an advertising budget. They're found at, at co-ops and, and upscale grocery stores and little organic sandwich shops. Um, online, exactly. You can find, find them online. They've got their own websites. You can do some research if you've got the time. You can contact the company and say, I want to know if you've got child labor in your supply chain or are you small batch or what do your ingredients mean? Transparency, communication, a good brand and, and even some of the brands that are sort of hoping to turn that corner, they want to communicate with us. So I look for, uh, I look for the, the brands that are not the nationally advertised brands. That's already going to be large batch if they've got the budget <laughs> to be nationally advertised. Good for them, in a sense, but I know that that's large batch. Um, so I look for the little brands like these. All right. Well, I would love to show you a video of what a healthy cocoa farm looks like. And I've got a, a quick clip, too, on how a microbatch maker makes chocolate. It's just so cool. Basically, my client flies to Uganda, gets the cocoa beans, flies back to Arkansas, and mixes it up in, uh, in his small batch workshop. My biggest client, uh, we're, we're, you know, we can talk openly. My biggest client is maybe about $2.5 million in revenue. That's small batch. Um, and then my smallest client is, you know, one guy... Uh, uh, and, and the beans, and, and so there's, there's a range within that. Uh, this is the smallest segment of chocolate, bean-to-bar chocolate, you might say, or craft chocolate, but it's also the fastest-growing segment. Personally, I find it a super delicious segment, so that's why I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in it. Yes, yeah. It's a great question. If you're a chef, a pastry chef, or a home uh, baker, where do you get the good stuff, the clean stuff to bake with at a wholesale price? So we do have some solutions for you now, but that's pretty recent in about five years. You know, before that, gosh, it was super hard. Um, I do have a couple of brands. So Solstice is making really delicious bulk chocolate for chefs. Um, it's about $22 a pound wholesale. So is that cheap and accessible, many people would say no. Um, but that's the price of quality. That's the price of paying the workers instead of having child slaves do the labor. Um, but Solstice is really good. Uh, Dick Taylor um, also does really great uh, bulk chocolate uh, for chefs. Um, and Violet Sky in South Bend, Indiana, right around the curve of the lake where some of the students and I took an excursion to uh, uh, just on Labor Day. So yeah, for bulk, uh, I like Solstice, Dick Taylor, and um, uh, Violet Sky. You know, if you do work with Valrona and, and Calibo, and again, I mean, these are great brands in so many ways. I certainly don't mean to, to denigrate the, the care that they that they put into to so much of what they do. You can talk with your Calibo and Valrona rep and say, I want single origin. I don't want child labor in what you're giving me. Give me just from Brazil 
Brazil or just from Tanzania. Don't give me the blends that's like a little of child labor and a little of this and a little more of that. You can, you can talk with them and, and, and they, they will work with you. Yeah, I've got these on my website, um, and uh, I'm just so proud of my, of my small batch brands because they are the, the chocolate revolution. <laughs> Want to see a cocoa farm? Ooh, let's check it out. Here, while I'm uh, queuing it up, I'll tell you, this is, um, it's an ad. It's actually not from one of my clients. I just like their ad. It's Navitas Naturals. Um, this is a cocoa farm in Peru. Rich supply of antioxidants. The color of this polyphenols known as is an excellent source of dietary fiber has one of the highest known dietary sources of magnesium and contains a host of other essential minerals. Cacao is grown throughout the world, but the farms in the Amazonian lowlands of Peru provide us with two important requirements. First, the cacao here is organically grown on small family-run farms, and second, state-of-the-art processing facilities are available that ensure necessary safety and quality standards. Join us on our journey to the Amazonian lowlands of Peru en route to find what the Mayans call the food of the gods. Today, cacao continues to be an important part of the Peruvian economy. It helps support communities where children are required to attend school and literacy rates are over 90%. The cacao plant has also provided Peruvian farmers with eco-friendly farming methods. Here, the passing of traditional farming techniques to the next generation is an important responsibility and part of family life. When we visited this farm on Saturday, the entire family was harvesting cacao, separating the beans, and beginning the fermentation process. They were also cutting back the trees and letting the cuttings fall on the ground around the base of the trees. As the cuttings decomposed, they added nutrients and natural pest control to the soil. They then composted the old cacao pods with coffee beans to create an organic soil blend perfectly suited for cacao fertilization. A mature cacao fruit is harvested when the pods change color. Navitas Naturals heirloom Peruvian cacao beans have been hand-selected and slow-dried at low temperatures. Next, the whole beans are washed with purified water to ensure maximum cleanliness. Only after our products meet the highest standards of quality and safety are they shipped to San Francisco in refrigerated containers and packaged at one of the Navitas Naturals facilities which are certified organic and kosher. Navitas Naturals provides organic raw cacao in seven forms. Whole beans, nibs, sweetened nibs, powder, liquor, butter, and lip balm. We'll end it there on lip balm. That's so cute, right? <laughs> we'll end it there on lip balm. That's so cute. So again, it's an ad. They're not my client. I just think it's a nice video that kind of shows the um, uh, the farm. Here, I'll come back around in a second. Um, but uh, I thought really quickly I'd show next a really micro-batch client of mine, Hello Coco, where he flies to Uganda, gets the beans himself in his hand. Uh, you know, we actually do ship them and, and import them, but he just goes there and, and gets them um, and uh, and comes back. So super micro batch, but you'll see some of the steps. Uh, so when you've got the raw cocoa beans, you roast them. They get that brownie type flavor. It's, it's really wonderful. You don't roast them as hot as coffee. You want to roast them uh, much lower, uh, not, not as hot as coffee beans, much lower, uh, maybe just about 200 degrees, maybe just 10 minutes. And your roast profile, if you're a chocolate maker, is something really fun to experiment with. For example, you'll get different flavors if you roast a little bit hotter or a little bit colder or a little bit longer, a little bit 
shorter. So you can really play with that, chart it out, see what flavors, what story you're going to let the cocoa bean tell. After you roast, now you winnow. Now you get that skin off, that husk off with your vacuum sucker or however you're, you're going to try to do it. After you winnow, now you've got the... Um, uh, beans with the skin off. Now you want to crack the beans before they go straight into the grinder. If you can get them into smaller particles, you'll have an easier grind. So you'll put them through kind of like a juicer um, type of a, a machine, a cracker that'll get the beans into smaller size. Now you're ready to grind. And here's where your patience and your time and labor comes in. Because you remember, you've got to grind for at least 36 hours to get a good molecular structure. So many of my small batch makers find that if they grind for four days, five days, Oh, they've got lustrous, smooth chocolate. The cocoa butter is now evenly coating the chocolate molecules through that long grinding time. And so just to add a little sugar, a whole bar of... I left them over here. Anyway, a whole bar of chocolate like this has about the tenth of the sugar of, say, a Hershey or a Lint or a Nestle. Um, so we hear so much about sugar in the news, and, and rightly so, uh, but a lot of that is in our spaghetti sauce and our breakfast cereal in these kind of hidden places. A whole bar like that has got less than a, a tenth of, of the sugar of a commercial bar. So after you grind and you add the sugar, which at this grinding time, you can add other flavors too, which is really fun. You could put in some bananas or, you know, put in whatever you want, as long as it's powdered, right? Not a liquid form, but a, a dry goods form. Now, after you grind the cocoa beans for three days, four days, 